Today's podcast is brought to you by Kind Wealth. For those of you who know me, I know you know I started Kind Wealth uh, to democratize access to high quality, unbiased financial advice in Canada. So at Kind Wealth, we work with young families, professionals, entrepreneurs who want to make sure they're making the most of their money so that they can not only reach their life goals, but also they do it in a way that matches their values and they feel good about it. So it's not only important to reach the destination, but how you get there matters. Our model is unique because unlike most financial advisors, we don't sell any financial products and we don't collect any sales commissions. So our clients pay us flat fees for unbiased advice they know they can trust. So visit us at kindwealth.ca and see how we can help you make the most of your money. This episode is also brought to you by Social Capital Markets, the organization that brings us the world's biggest impact investing conference, SOCAP. Unlike previous years, SOCAP 20 will be a virtual experience. Those of you who have been before, you'll will miss San Francisco this year. Uh, but just as in past years, the conference organizers want you to help create and curate the content. So the window for submitting ideas for session conference sessions is now closed, but voting is now open for the ideas that have been submitted. So you can help choose which content we'll see at the conference this year. And also, now is your chance to get tickets for a steal. The conference normally costs close to $1,000, depending on when you purchase and how late you purchase the tickets. The virtual conference this year is just $149 US if you purchase right now at the early bird prices. And I believe they're on until July. So this is your chance to get in at a steal. To get your tickets, visit socialcapitalmarkets.net. Also, just a big shout out to Alfira Ascar, who left a rating and review of the podcast on Apple iTunes. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Your ratings and reviews help us surface in the search results so that other people can find us. So, Alfira, thank you so much. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 17 of the Impact Investing Podcast. Today's guest is a friend of mine. Don't get to see her and uh, interact with her nearly as much as I'd like to, as you'll tell from the intro of this podcast. But Rahana is really just a wonderful person, but more than that is a really impressive social finance professional. She right now is the founder and CEO of Spectrum Impact, which is a strategy consulting firm that helps organizations expand their impact investing footprint. It is an organization she founded and runs. But her previous experiences include sort of the gamut of who's who in the social impact space, from the for-profit to the non-profit. So she previously led the impact investing program at the Case Foundation. She helped design Bank of New York Mellon's social finance program and the, their pilot impact investment fund. She spent time at the Rockefeller Foundation leading their impact investing grant-making program and has uh, spent time supporting partnerships at the UN Capital Development Fund. Rohana right now serves as the adjunct assistant professor at uh, Georgetown University's Global Human Development Program, and she teaches on impact investing in social finance, particularly in emerging markets. During the conversation today, we discuss 
those experiences, her perspectives on those organizations and the industries, just given the wide variety of, of background uh, that she has and, and from different contexts, which I all think, think are all fascinating. And we dive throughout the podcast between kind of weave between her past experiences, her current work with Spectrum Impact with really interesting clients like Elvest and the Equality Fund. And we dive into a range of topics that just I've been fascinated by. I wanted Rahana's perspective on so things like, you know, the distinctions between socially responsible investing, ESG investing and impact investing talking about impact measurement, um, talking about some of the organizations that Rahana in particular uh, thinks are doing really great work. We cover a wide range of subjects. I hope you find it interesting. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we have Rahana Nathu. Rahana, thanks for joining the podcast. Welcome. So thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I've been excited to have this conversation for a little while. We've got to know each other I think online originally, and then yeah. you know, had some chats and met, you know, bumped into each other at conferences. And right. uh, I feel like every time we chat, it's always like 15 minutes in between, you know, the million other things you have to do. Yeah. Um, and so it's rushed. It's always a great conversation, but there's this like long list of things I would love to talk to you about. And so this is actually my opportunity to just like have those conversations and get <laughs> on those things and we'll just record it and make it a podcast. So thanks. That works uh, great really for me. It. No, really happy to be here. And I'm so glad that we're finally doing this. Yeah. So before we kind of get into your your really interesting background and set of experiences, tell us a little bit about, so you, you founded and run Spectrum Impact, and mm-hmm. it's uh, essentially a consulting organization mm-hmm. or organizations getting into impact investing, maybe more even broad than that. But why don't you give everybody the kind of rundown on Spectrum Impact? Yeah, happy to. So um, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, We sort of take a management consulting approach to the impact investing industry. And our principal aim uh, is basically to give organizations a roadmap for what an impact strategy should look like. Um, We typically work with um, allocators and investors. So what that means in our world is people that are making decisions around how to deploy a massive amount of money Uh, for a set of social challenges that they probably understand, but probably not quite to the extent um, that is needed to build, you know, a three, five, seven, 10 year plan. So we sort of come in and do a little bit of workshopping. What, what is the change that you want to see? And that's followed typically by a pretty honest, sometimes awkward conversation around strengths and weaknesses. So what, what assets do you, the firm have to deploy to the problem and what can you not do? Uh, and sort of facilitating a very early conversation around opportunities and limitations. And then we'll turn that into an actual sort of strategy. So that either sort of includes building an, a product, uh, which very many of our clients want. For other clients, it's a little bit less about putting something on their balance sheet and a little bit more about the right kind of partnership or the right way to talk about the work they've already done. So how we help them do that tends to be um, a pretty pretty broad menu of things, but the starting point for every single client is a very real conversation around how they can and should tackle this problem. So what are examples of types of organizations? You mentioned and organizations allocating capital. Yeah. What are examples of that? Foundations, uh, charities? Yeah. Yeah. Our, 
No, it's the right question. So I would say over the course of the last two years, our sweet spot, uh, it's actually two types of clients. So the first are on balance sheet fund managers, which in the impact investing space usually looks like you said, like foundations, really large nonprofits that are standing up some sort of investment vehicle, family offices that are doing the same kind of thing, um, or big corporations that are spinning off impact funds or impact arms. And on the other side of the house, we have the larger uh, for-profit startups that are doing work that is in the impact industry, but maybe don't have a specific offering that is an impact investment product. And the reason that we the reason that we work with the first group, the on balance sheet fund managers, is because we we deeply understand um, how how much easier it is when you are starting an initiative that's connected with a larger corporate or parent entity, right? It's so much easier to come in with a strategy perspective when it's the the strategy is already set by the primary investor. Our colleagues in the in the actual fund management space um, are doing really hard work. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to build build a portfolio. And strategy is a bit of a luxury, so we really focus in on on the folks that are single seated, single funded type initiatives. Um, so in our portfolio, good examples of that um, would be uh, the work that we've done at the Equality Fund, which I know we'll dig into a little bit. Um, some of the work um, that we've done for folks like uh, Plan International and FHI 360. Um, and then on the on the private company side, some of the work that we've done for folks like Elevest out in New York. Um, so for us, the the who the client looks like is actually fairly broad, broader I think than most consulting businesses. But the starting point is identical, which is we know we want to do impact investing. We have absolutely no idea how to do it. So the second type of client, the large kind of the large for profit startup. Yeah. What 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 types of startups are these? Like what types of yeah. businesses are they? Yeah, it's a good question, um, uh, it, mostly because it's a pretty broad answer, which is part of where the fun comes from. So we'll take the example of, of Elevest. So Elevest is a digital financial advisor based in New York that is really tackling um, the way that women uh, have really been left out of the wealth accumulation story. Um, and their, their theory of change was to actually rethink uh, a lot of the digital algorithms that tell us when to save, how to save, and how much we can save. Uh, and really rethinking that for very obvious things to you and me, but hadn't really disrupted the industry. Like women live longer than men. Um, women over the course of their career see raises at a different sort of fluctuation than men. So men often peak periodically over the course of their career. Many professional women peak very early and then stagnate over the course of their salary career. Uh, silly things like that, that of course we're talking and we're saying, yeah, that makes sense. And then you put them into an algorithm and all of a sudden the savings, the future that you're planning for is actually not right adjusted for your lifestyle. Uh, so an Elevest, I would argue, is very much an impact investor. Uh, they've built a business with a very uh, clear equal opportunity mandate in mind, but they didn't necessarily call themselves that. Uh, and over the course of their journey have not only identified themselves as an impact investor, but also a gender lens investor, which I think they absolutely are. And so we would typically come into an organization like that and just help refine and hone what that message is. I think we find that a lot of companies are feeling very um, wary of coming into this space and being responsible for some of the impact washing that we're seeing, right? Just stick the impact label on something that was never impact to begin with. And so I think part of what we loved with Elevest and with a lot of our, our corporate clients uh, is a very real intention to get it right. Um, so there's a very, very sort of honest, self-aware assessment that we want to be part of the solution, not part of the impact washing problem. Uh, and so those clients are particularly fun. 
Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with um, Elvest and uh, love what they're doing there. I didn't actually didn't realize they were a client of yours. Uh, yeah. That's a really cool, uh, really cool example. Um, so I, actually, I'm going to digress for a second here because I'm, I'm curious what your for your feedback on this, because um, you, you sort of talked about them as a as an impact investor. And yeah. I'm might have associated them with a, as a social enterprise yep. because they're when I hear the term impact investor, I think more of the traditional on balance sheet fund yep. manager, somebody starting a fund, whether yep. that's a charity or, or a for profit. Um, right. And you're talking about, you know, a for profit business, um, not necessarily establishing a fund or using balance sheet assets to make imp- outside impact of investments, right. but I guess to make the investments in their own business that right. lead to impact yep. sort of second or, or third bottom line rather than the, the profit. Is that, is that how you're thinking about it? I think that's exactly right. And I think what's interesting about a company like Elevest is that they are both a raiser of capital and a deployer of capital, which doesn't always happen in the social enterprise space. It's usually the delivery of some sort of good or service that has a very specific and beneficiary in mind. Um, and I think that's kind of what makes an Elevest such a critical player in the context of who can be an impact investor because they can both raise money um, for the business, then they can design bespoke products to deliver value for clients, which in turn has all kinds of wealth generation and accumulation potential. Um, And so it's when we think about sort of the cyclicality of the market, often it's these one directional arrows, right? Going, going across the spectrum. And I think what's cool about financial services companies of which I would consider LFS one is that they, that, that it's a bi-directional arrow, right? They're both serving the beneficiaries and they're changing the market. Um, but, but for all intents and purposes, I would totally agree in my mind that they are a social enterprise. And I think what, what, helps define that is really the intention with which the business was created or the intention with which the investor sort of cuts the check. Um, and I think that that commonality across their activities is, is right. is part of the way that some of these firms should be thinking about what the future looks like. What would you say that if, would you say that all social enterprises are impact investors? If, if you would consider them a social enterprise, you would also consider them an impact investor? Not necessarily, although I think that's a really, really thoughtful question. I think a lot of the firms that are in financial services or in access to capital positions uh, tend to be both, mostly because they need to raise the capital that they deploy uh, and that the thing that they're deploying is capital. I think we have examples of all of these brilliant social enterprises out there in the market, particularly in emerging markets that actually deliver some sort of good, right? So if I think about like a, a um, home solar social enterprise, right, that's thinking about access to energy um, by solving the storage issue in sub-Saharan Africa, I wouldn't necessarily consider them an impact investor, although they're absolutely a social enterprise. Um, but the Elevests and the open invests and the swells and the ethics of the world. I think they, I th- we might need a new term, heaven forbid, but I think they occupy a really, a really cool space of kind of being responsible for both parts of the market. And I don't think we find a lot of firms like that. Right. I, I, I see what you're saying. Because they, like in L- Elevest case and open invest, like they're creating right. in- investment vehicles for their clients to then exactly. allocate their investment capital. And so they're. Exactly. They're both an impact investor and a social enterprise and because through their, their business itself is trying to solve a problem right. of inequal access for women to totally. Pay. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Do you, this is a, sort of a, only a semi-related question. Um, I, you know, I've been wrestling, I, I wrestle a fair bit with um, 
the kind of the lines as we all, I think all do between kind of mm-hmm. ESG, what somebody might call a social, social or responsible investing versus impact investing. Yeah. Um, and I see those as sort of along a potentially along a, a continuum and yeah. with kind of blurred lines sometimes between, between those things. But I, I it's been interesting to me. I, I first came across it on the responsible investment associations website. And I know that I think like the UN, uh, PRI and a number of other kind of impact organizations have kind of adopted this idea that, you know, the general term is responsible investing and that impact mm-hmm. investing is kind of a sub strategy of responsible investing. Um, and I, I thought I've found that, um, counterintuitive to me. Yeah. It doesn't feel quite <laughs> right. right to me that like, right. it's just this sort of sub strategy. It feels to me me- like meaningful, di- meaningfully different. And I, I think yeah. of, when I, I don't know. And the, so I'm curious for your feedback. I'll just sort of explain my, how I've sort of viewed it. I mean, I, I kind of think about it as like ESG would be, you know, it's not always the case, but if you want to neatly kind of bucket it or define it, you're, you're just fact, you're just trying to control for risks mm-hmm. along the you know, environmental, social and governance lines. And you can do ESG investing for no other reason than I actually think that it's going to prove my risk adjusted returns. And I don't mm-hmm. really care about any social or environmental good that comes uh, as a result of it. And you can mm-hmm. fully be an ESG investor without any concern for the world mm-hmm. uh, because it actually, you know, should Im- improve your, your risk adjusted returns. And then SRI is where I would say you start to first get into this, this world of like, Oh, I actually do. There's something more important to me than just my risk adjusted return, my risk adjusted financial return. Uh, and I do care about social and environmental returns as well. And that's why I am potentially, potentially willing to not necessarily that you have to, but I'd be willing to, to factor in other things, even if it's not clear to me that it will lead to a better risk adjusted financial return. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say impact investing is where you're sort of really going on the offense and you're saying like, I, I'm so SRI would be to me like investing in, uh, still publicly traded securities businesses that like are in the business of making a profit selling shoes or selling, you know, salon services or whatever it is that mm-hmm. they do. Their, their business was never set up for the purpose of solving a problem. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I'd say impact investing, which is primarily private securities. Now, one day that may change. They may become you know more and more public securities, but, but their business was conceived to solve a problem. And that to me feels kind of meaningfully, it doesn't feel like a sub strategy of, mm-hmm. well, I'm, you know, I'd like, I'd like the, these for-profit businesses that I invest in not to be destroying the world. And I'd like for right. them not to be taking advantage of their employees to right. say like, I'm going to select, you know, in this part of my portfolio, only businesses that were conceived to solve a problem by the very nature of what they do and how they make a profit. Right. It just doesn't feel like a sub strategy of the other, but I think maybe I'm in the minority here. <laughs> I mean, everything that you say actually resonates because what you're, what, what is helpful about your classification is what, what is it for? I think in addition to sort of what you flagged, there's, there's two things I think that help me try and wade through this muck and it really can feel like that sometimes it, we have a, um, I think, a um, a predilection for naming something, even if it's not particularly new. So I think for me, the most important question across the alphabet soup is um, uh, what asset class is it being applied to? I think one of the things that impact investing has done in its early days is actually shy away from uh, its, its financial traditional investment origins. So a very real like, oh my gosh, the capitalism is bad. Impact investing is here to make things right. 
we're actually not going to use the language, the jargon, and the taxonomy of the investment ecosystem. We're going to start with what's right and then back our way in. I don't think that that's reflective of all impact investors, but early impact investing really did have a sense of sort of guilt and apology, um, atonement, if you will. And I actually think that that was a disservice to to how quickly we could have pushed adoption. I think at the end of the day, anyone who is going to thrive in impact investing has to believe truly that it is fundamentally an investment. And in the investment universe, the the qualification of what you do really just lies on a very basic continuum between risk and return. And I think when we abscond from the risk and return language, we actually forget that these are investment securities, investment categories, and investment sectors that actually look very similar from an asset perspective. So I bring that up because I actually think that things like ESG, and I would agree with your definition, the integration of some of these considerations and factors to maximize, or or in this case, minimize risk, uh, ESG is really only truly appropriate in the universe of public securities, right? That there is an efficacy in screening things in and out companies based on how they perform on a set of indicators. To me, socially responsible investment is actually coming back to the intention with which you're making the investment and just happens to have tools that, again, only really apply to public security. So you can screen things out through negative screens. You can screen things in through positive screens. You can create thematic types of entities. But the underlying things that we're talking about are typically public securities. And then to your point in impact investing, you have the ability to create a business from scratch and the business that you're creating from scratch, at least for a short period of time, is going to be a private private business. Unless, you know, you hit the jackpot and you're, you're one of the few so- social impact companies that are now public companies. And so to me, I think a lot of the consideration around ESG versus SRI versus impact investing is really a, um, a different way of saying what kind of asset are we talking about and what are the characteristics of that asset? There's only so much that you can do in public securities um, around ESG, right? You, you can't, unless you are a massive shareholder, you're not really going into the company and saying, I really don't like your carbon footprint. Let's change that. <laughs> but when you're building a company from scratch and you say to yourself, we really care about our carbon footprint, irrespective of our success, there's real opportunity for stakeholder benefit there. And so I think at the end of the day, the conversation around which tool we should use should be right adjusted for the asset that we're talking about but also then secondarily adjusted for the intention. Is the goal for your personal portfolio not to reflect something contrary to your values? Or is the goal for you to support a specific business that you think is going to have outsized positive impact on the world? And I think it's a a bit of a non-answer to your question, but I think think those two frameworks, uh, at least for me, make wading through the (laughs) <laughs> the muck a little bit more manageable. Otherwise, it's just a whole bunch of different things by the same name. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, I, I mean, I could I could go on a lot longer on this, topic, <laughs> but I want to um, I want to hear a little bit about you, just because we were talking about the work that Spectrum does. Right. Um, you did a tw- Twitter Q and A yesterday, and you've kind of yes. got a an impact framework that you've yep. published, and we're taking kind of questions and answers on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Twitter Q&As are, I think, the millennial version of the emperor has no clothes. I mean, you're totally putting yourself out there. Um, And uh, I think that, so the genesis of it was basically that um, I think impact investing uh, can be really inaccessible. Um, mostly because it's a compromise of two things. So I think a lot of people that are traditionally trained in the financial system sort of look at it and say, 
yeah, but I did eye banking, so this world is not for me. I'm not, I'm not accepted here. And then I think a, a lot of development professionals, which was my training, sort of look at the Impact Investing Universe and say like, well, this is for the investment nerds and I'm not welcome here. And so a lot of the way that Spectrum has approached our work, quite frankly, is in, as, the, um, as a translator. So taking either investment concepts or development concepts and translating them for the opposite audience, because I think we know, and I certainly don't need to tell you that the only way that this stuff scales is if it's truly cross-sector. Otherwise, we're just staying in our own silos. So the Twitter Q&A was an opportunity, I think, to... Um, uh, do two things. One, to promote the fact that we have distilled all of our methodology into um, free toolkits that are available uh, on our website for download. Um, but two, to create sort of a safe space to ask some questions about the very basics of impact investing. Um, and the reaction to the, to the Q&A, I think, is indicative of the problem. So whatever reaction we did get was entirely private. There were emails, texts, DMs. Nobody yeah, actually jumped in on the-, right, on the actual chat. Yeah. Uh, and I think we, my team and I, were just kind of surprised, right? That um, even in the spirit of there's no such thing as a dumb question, come at us, challenge us, tell us if your perspective is different. Even then people were feeling very wary. And so there was um, maybe both a um, uh, sort of resurgence or, or reaffirmation for us that free information is going to help all of us and we should put more of it out. But there was also a reminder that um, especially in the wake of COVID and, and what I'm sure will be continued crisis over, over my lifetime, uh, people are feeling an urgency. And so what can we do to take all of that urgency and make impact investing super accessible? I don't know that we will try a Twitter Q&A again. That may not be the method for us, but mm-hmm. I think there's a very real commitment, at least on our team, to deliver pretty much as many resources as we can during this weird time. So t- uh, tell tell maybe a little bit about the actual yeah. framework itself that you've made public and is I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. So oh. essentially, um, our, our starting point, a really good friend of ours, I've mentioned this before, but a really good friend of ours references us as an impact investing marriage counselor, uh, which uh, is so inappropriate to all of my highly licensed therapist friends who have right. gone to school for like 10 years and <laughs> are actual <laughs> right. therapists. But um, I think that the sentiment is that the starting place has to be, let's talk about the change you want to see outcomes in the development vernacular, vernacular, excuse me, and not about the little things that you want to do to get there. And so in terms of how Spectrum approaches these things, that's our starting point. We sort of bust in the door on day one and say, forget all of your amazing ideas about a a growth stage healthcare venture capital fund, or let's forget all of your ideas about this really cool blended finance, subordinated debt mechanism, throw it out, throw it out, throw it out. What is the change that you actually want to see? And then once we start with the change that you want to see, um, let's talk about the ways that you can do it, you specifically, organization X, and let's talk about the ways that you can't do it. Um, It's kind of amazing over over my 10-ish years doing this, how um, how hard it is for people to walk into the solution delivery space, um, honestly. And it's, it's of no fault uh, or, or no, I think, statement around corporate intention in any way. I think it just has to do with impact investing and sectors like it are moving very, very quickly. And we, we very early on have defined what's sexy and what's not. Um, it's part of the reason why debt doesn't get as much of uh, airtime as it should in the impact investing space. And so I think our job is basically to start by saying, I know all of that sounds so cool. Everybody wants a fund right now, but let's talk about what you actually want to see changing. And then let's talk really frankly about 
what you're able to do. We have a lot of firms that walk in that sort of say, yeah, we really want to want to stand up a fund. It's going to look like a, a VC fund, um, but we need all the money back in three years and we can't really take on any risk. And, and in any other context, you would sort of sit there and say, well, that's not how it works. But in the guise of impact investing, we've lost a little bit my earlier point about like at the end of the day, it's still an investment vehicle. And I think a lot of the value that we bring is simply just saying that just showing up and sort of hearing the, hearing the very good intentions and translating them to very real action. And so our methodology basically follows that. We, we do a lot of the outcome setting. We do a really honest conversation around strengths and weaknesses, and then we turn that into action. So for us, then it's really about adding a new, um, a new expertise or product that does not exist in the market. That's pretty big to us, uh, not uh, reinventing the wheel, which uh, I know a lot of people in the space are very conscious of. Um, and then really pushing our clients to make two pretty strong commitments. The first is towards measurement. And so we have a pretty strong belief that there's a responsible amount of measurement. It's, it's a little bit unfair, I think, to ask impact investing fund managers to sort of provide their secret sauce on day one, but we don't actually ask traditional fund managers to ever do that. So uh, I say responsible measurement pretty intentionally that I think it's unfair to hold these fund managers to a different standard, but this is a different work. Um, and then the second commitment is to transparently sharing. There is um, uh, no nothing like a pandemic to remind us that resources are really tight and they're finite. Uh, and unless there's a money tree somewhere that I don't know, I don't know about it. That's not changing anytime soon. And so, can we um, can we really encourage organizations to offer their own field building by talking about what didn't didn't work? And it's that last part. I'm sure it's not a surprise to you that is absolutely the hardest. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> right. uh, you know it's one thing to say it, right? And it's another thing yeah. to do it and love it. Uh, there's a really great, I don't I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but if I have some people have to forgive me, but there's a really great tweet that, um, I can't even remember who, who tweeted it, but it was basically like, you know, HR department saying like, great, like I want to really want to solve, you know, I want to tackle gender uh, diversity in our you know workforce and have mm-hmm. more, hire more women. And so, and then this is a, you know, I think the tweet was by a woman who does kind of consulting for firms to you know, improve the gender right. uh, equality within their, within their organizations. She's like, okay, great. And so she kind of lets, you know, she lists like, here's the seven or eight, like really challenging things we need, you need to start to be doing. And they're like, you know, and the response is like, Oh no, I just meant like, how do we, you know, hire a few more women. Like, you know, <laughs> like the point is I've got right. I've really butchered the whole um, tweet. No, I get it. The point was like, you know, they say they, they just want the quick answer yeah. rather than we've got to do those very fundamental things. And that's just human nature, right? Like totally. we all want the results without having to do the hard work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe we'll dive in. Well, actually, so if you're an organization, if you're a, yep. a charity, a foundation, a for-profit, and you're looking at uh, thinking about how you um, – use your assets, your um, intellectual capital, your whatever your business mm-hmm. to uh, your organization's mission to drive impact. Uh, this sounds like a really great resource, your, your framework. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, um, we got some really great feedback early on um, in the lifespan of this business. Uh, two great pieces of feedback, actually. The first was charge what you're worth, um, which we can dig into later because I think a, a lot of a lot of um, consulting firms do or don't to various extremes. But the second was um, the more that you can build 
the more that you can build public education, the better off your business will be. Um, and it's by no means original, although much more eloquently said when it was delivered to me than what I just said. But I, I think part of what makes it so easy to work uh, in impact investing is that is that even when we're not necessarily making money, we're priming the pump so that the the industry itself can rise and thrive. And that's, you know, from where we sit, pretty much best case scenario for everybody. And so this is a uh, this is this is not really altruism. It's it's actually self-serving, and it's also I think a, um, a very nerdy desire. I think to see to see a world where uh, impact investing doesn't actually exist. That it just sort of takes over the traditional investment framework, and we um, we don't even have to really use the language anymore. Yeah, no, I I, I completely I completely agree, and I hope to see that day. Um, <laughs> hope I live long enough for that for that day. Right. Um, <laughs> Okay, so let's just dive a little bit into your history because it's it's too I, it's too fascinating not to change gears and 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 dive into that. Um, so you're originally studied at Queens. You did a master's at Seton Hall. Um, right. It was a kind of your undergraduate was um, political like politics. Were you, yeah, right? poli sci. Mm-hmm. Poli sci, and then you did uh, economics in your yeah, master's. Yeah, it was development finance and foreign policy. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you come into your master's, you go and spend a couple of years in Uganda, between Uganda and Tanzania. Is that, yep. is that right? So talk right. a little, what were you doing out there? Yeah. So that was, um, that was the, my, my, um, my dream come true for my twenties. So when I, when I was at Queens, um, I, uh, I'm sure my parents were just gut what are you going to do with a poli sci degree? Why are you doing this to us? But I Mine was uh, English I literature. Know. So see, there we go. We're kinfolk. I knew it. <laughs> My um, often much wiser partner did managerial economics, which in hindsight should have been the the way to go. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I I had the unbelievable opportunity to go to Bolivia between my third and fourth year of college, and um, and you know, it's so cliche, but like you have that moment where you're like, my gosh, there's so much, there's so much else to do. There's the world is so much bigger than this. And so I came back and had, um, a brilliant professor at Queens. His name was Wayne Cox. And he basically moved mountains to get me into, um, a fourth year seminar on international relations, which I was a little bit, a little bit too late for. Um, but he managed to make it happen and that's it. That sort of set me off to the races. And for me, there was a a very real opportunity to maybe go into international relations and try and find a way to use macroeconomic relationships to 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 push us further, which means that the UN was, you know, like every every child's every child's dream when you're an IR nerd. So when I graduated from Seton Hall, um, which was an unbelievable training ground for this dual way of thinking, both economics and uh, foreign policy. I went to work for um, um, a company called um, Global DF, and Global DF had basically been recruited by the UN Capital Development Fund, which was the private lending arm of the UNDP, um, to think about ways to build uh, investment in local markets. And so I just got unbelievably lucky. Um, the countries that we were piloting were Uganda and Tanzania, which is actually where my parents were from. So talk about like fortuitous. Uh, and I basically, for for the better part of two years, got to live. Um, on and off between New York, Dar es Salaam, and Kampala, um, I got to live a shadow version of their lives, which was incredible. And I, I basically spent my time trying to help local financial institutions 
um, create relationships with local borrowers. So um, I know I don't need to t- tell you of all people, but credit in, a, in an emerging market context is a really uh, euphemistic sort of thing. And so a lot of borrowers in these markets were actually primed for investment loans specifically, and local banks just didn't really know how to look at them or think about them. And so we basically fostered those relationships. Uh, the UNCDF gave out um, these really, really thoughtful, kind of cutting edge um, credit enhancements that would secure the loans um, for some of these local farmers. Uh, and it was just, I mean, talk about like the dream first job, right? To figure out like what this could look like in a real way. Um, I got really, really lucky. It was so formative. That's amazing. That's so cool. And they so were, cool. you were there for two years? Yes. Yeah. Just, work? just, yeah, just, uh, just over two years. And then from there? And then from there, um, uh, the, the, the jewel, jewel in the crown, I guess. Um, I hopped over to the Rockefeller foundation. Um, and I, um, for just hopped for, over, <laughs> just hopped over. It's just, yes. it was fine. It was just hopped over. <laughs> Actually it's, um, it was pretty great. I, my, uh, my interview, my final round interview at, at, at Rockefeller was, was, um, while I had a six hour layover, um, back in New York. So I'd come back from Kampala and we were actually leaving for, um, uh, I can't even remember, but we were going somewhere in Europe literally that night. And there was a six hour window that I could do this interview and I come off the plane and I look terrible and I sprained my ankle on the way there. And then I got there and I fell into their water fountain and there's no reason why I should have gotten that job. You did not fall into their water fountain. I did. I did. The poor, I remember the gentleman at the front desk, his name at the time that his name was Jose. Um, he's not there anymore, but he just, he came running over and just was like, I, I don't, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I did uh, right before I met with the, with the VP. Uh, which was mortifying, but well, I must have made an impression. Held it together, obviously. Yeah. Blood gushing down my hairline, yeah. Um, but it was, I mean, it was pretty much the perfect place to be as somebody who had then realized that I wanted to learn about impact investing. I loved the work at the UN, but I think I, I realized that it was some of that more macro level systems change that really motivated me. I mean, the on the ground impact is the reason to do it. But I think for me, I wanted to change some of the behavior systems around the way that we think. And so being at a place like Rockefeller, which, you know, invented the term impact investing, even though it's existed for quite some time and really helped formalize what that world looks like, that was a dream come true. And so I got to spend about two years there um, helping to transition the impact investing portfolio actually to a new body of work called innovative finance, um, which was difficult and amazing at the same time. And the foundation had decided that it was time for the next chapter and impact investing would always be a part of the organization, but it could be reframed in a way that delivered even more impact. And so I got there thinking like, I'm going to run an impact investing portfolio and found out actually there's a different way of thinking about it. Um, so talk about drinking from the fire hose. I mean, I, I feel like I learned more in those two years than probably the six or seven years before that. It was incredible. So um, unpack that a bit, that yeah. transition from impact investing into broader innovative finance. Yeah. So at the time, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the um, field building around what impact investing could be was sort of straddled 2007, 2008. And so by the time I got there in 2013, the, the foundation, along with a lot of other really incredible foundations, um, had laid a ton of groundwork, right? We had a, all of these really brilliant capacity building grants that institutionalized impact investing. So creating the global impact investing network, the GIN, um, Rockefeller was instrumental in helping to spin that out, uh, helping to 
build and grow some of the taxonomies like Iris and Gears, um, actually creating pretty significant regional grants around hubs in impact investing for um, the African and Asian subcontinent. So thinking about impact investing beyond North America. So they had done all this work to build the ecosystems. And I think the thought process internally was, okay, we've, we've primed the pump. Can we now use this capital to actually pick a couple of products, a couple of innovations that we think are going to take things to the next level and fuel those um, and allow some of our peers to continue to do sort of the high level field building while we focus on solutions. And so during my time there, we explored unrestricted cash transfers. We looked at different types of bonds. Um, We created a financing mechanism for diaspora communities between North America and their home communities, mostly uh, in Africa and Asia. And it was just a, a really interesting moment to watch the dividends of, of making all those grants, of, of priming the field, um, pay off, quite frankly. During my time there, they also the organization also deeply increased um, the amount of funding for the program-related investment portfolio. And so the foundation was also actually um, um, investing, uh, mostly through de- but investing um, in the solutions they really believed in. And so it just so happened that I arrived when they were ready for the next chapter um, and really intentionally and thoughtfully seized the opportunity and struggled with what it meant to move from, you know, the the very classic field building grant maker to a much more focused product and intervention oriented grant maker. And did that also include, it sounds to me a little bit, and you just tell me if I'm interpreting this. It also sort of like expanding the ideas around how their assets would be used instead of just granting and or investing potentially cash transfers or, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know if those sort are of blended finance, de-risking. I mean, yeah. like, I don't know if you're sort of thinking about those things, but innovative finance being a much broader sort of spectrum right. than just impact investing. Yeah. I mean, I think some of those innovations came a little bit after my time. Rockefeller now has sort of the asset management group and all of that. But while I was there, we were starting to think about ways that we could better blend the grant making and the program related investment. So typically those two parts of the house sat somewhat separate, although deeply informed by each other. My closest friends at Rockefeller were on the PRI team. Um, So we worked very closely together, but we didn't necessarily work on the same deals together. And I think um, during my time there and definitely after, um, thanks to the leaders who were there, there was also a desire to basically build our own capital stack, right? So, so that in much of these blended finance interventions, you do have a layer of pretty much everything. You've got grants, you've got debt, um, you've got different tranches of debt based on risk, based on repayment. Um, and so trying to build them all together um, in a Rockefeller-esque capital stack was kind of a cool new thing to try. Um, a lot of our peers had been doing that for a while. The Heron Foundation is one great example of, of I think, structuring behemoths in the name of impact and really having a, a, a great theory of change on how to do that. Um, but we were getting to that moment. Yeah, we were getting to that line where we were thinking, are, are there other ways that we can do this more creatively? Can, can we pause on this for a second, this, talk, yeah. this idea of like integrating... As you as you just kind of mentioned, it's it's typical to have grant you know in foundations in particular to have granting done in one area and investing done in another because for most foundations their investments don't have anything to do with their mission, mm-hmm. it's just a, a means to an end to to you know grow the um, the assets. And as impact investing came along, they realized right we can actually use the investment portfolio to drive impact, and then you have the mm-hmm. field of program related investments. 
Um, and so then the idea is like, well, wait a minute, why are we having the decisions made by entirely separate groups around how to mm -hmm. use that capital? Shouldn't, you know, are there opportunities for them to, to, is it, is it not, does it not re result in a better outcome if they're actually either the same group and, or at least coordinating highly and communicating with one another so that, you know, you, you anyway, you have opportunities, I think, to, um, think more holistically about how you use that, that capital. Um, so do you like, is that an area that you think is, it sounds to me like it's still most organizations haven't integrated them fully. Right. Um, and to what extent is that valuable and productive and worth yeah. the effort <laughs> and what sort I mean, of calls do you see there? Yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> it's a very timely question, especially as we think about what foundational capital is for, right? So, so this didn't really happen, uh, or I wasn't in these conversations at Rockefeller, so I can't speak to RF specifically, but it, this has been a topic of incredible conversation over the last couple of years. Um, and actually it's the folks over at the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, uh, a separate entity that have really talked about this in the most thoughtful way. Um, and that is that, you know, in the, in, in the typical foundation setup, as you mentioned, you've got 95% of the capital in an endowment structure that essentially has the principal goal of maintaining the endowment by whatever means necessary. And then you've got 5% annually of that capital that goes out through grants. And uh, colleagues over at RBF have described it as taking one step forward, a hundred steps back, right? So you've got on the grant making side, you've got, let's say, for example, unbelievable climate change initiatives in all kinds of renewable technologies, solar, wind. Uh, and then in the endowment, you're in oil and gas. Right. And for a lot of organizations, this wasn't really a crisis of conscience in any way. It, there were very separate goals. Endowment makes money so that we can do this for the rest of our lives. Grant making changes the world. And I think what has changed is actually back to our earlier conversation around the alphabet soup. I think we have gotten better at holding ourselves more accountable on ways to have impact in the public markets. And I really don't think that was a big part of the conversation before. It was mostly, do you have values? Yes, my values are X, Y, Z. Okay, we'll craft a portfolio to that. We weren't really saying, are you doing a whole bunch of work over here that is then being undermined by all the work over here? Oh, let's solve that problem. And so I think increasingly it's because a lot of public issuances are changing their behavior that it's becoming easier for the endowment side of the portfolio to be much more impact oriented. I don't, I haven't seen, at least in the US, a com coming together of the mission-related investment team, so the endowment side and the program-related investment team, the grant side, around co-diligence, co-evaluation, any of that kind of stuff, mostly because there's quite an asset differentiation, which right, requires different skill sets and people doing different things. But I have actually noticed these teams talking to each other much, much more. I think the folks over at Ford are setting an amazing example for this, quite frankly. Um, I think, um, uh, the folks over at the Kellogg foundation are also setting a brilliant example for this. The idea that it doesn't need to be a fine, bright line, I think is probably our best step forward in this conversation. Uh, even though that probably sounds kind of light, it actually has been pretty seismic. Um, and then more that organizations like RBF who have been unbelievably transparent around how they've divested, for example, across all of their assets, the more that that kind of information comes out, the more that we actually create the roadmap for other foundations to follow suit. Um, mm. But I do think that that idea that these are two separate buckets for two different purposes, that idea is changing really quickly. I don't know a lot of organizations out there that are still trying to trying to argue that. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels to me like uh, this was a conversation actually that came up. So we had World Vision, we had submitted you know bid for the funding that eventually went to the Equality Fund, and right. um, as we were sort of wrestling through how would we sort of allocate this three hundred million dollars and structure mm-hmm. the investment side, we had this sort of debate internally around: Do we actually have separate? Granting and investment committees, um, mm-hmm. or are they one committee, um, mm-hmm. and how do they interact with one another? And and so I, I think you know I think you're right in that there's different skill sets brought to the table. I can imagine a world in which you've got a single committee with made up of people with different backgrounds that come to the yep. table and make decisions in a manner that that you know integrates the input of both you know, people with those various expertises into the into the decision making. I think. You know, probably to this day, it's probably still challenging because we don't have, we haven't had a long enough time frame where right. you have people who have gone to school for <laughs> impact investment, and that's what <laughs> right. they. You you have people coming from one side or the other, and the, yeah. the further we go down this path, I imagine that you, those skills will become more and more integrated. Not that you still wouldn't have specialists on one side or the other, but oh, that yeah. you'll have more people that sit in the middle that can kind of integrate and, and at least appreciate the nuances of even if they're not the expert in them, they can appreciate them better than where we are today, where we still have a lot of people that come from one side or the other and maybe lack an understanding of, of the opposite world yeah. the side of the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's interesting. Um, it probably sounds so it's so cliche because I'm not quite old enough that I'm allowed to say kids these days, but <laughs> they, they're the, one of the best parts of my life is teaching at Georgetown. And it's, um, I think it's one of the best parts of my life because it's equal parts humbling Mm -hmm. and uh, talk about like the bedrock for some sort of hope and inspiration. I mean, I, I teach graduate level students and these are students who have pretty much decided from the get go that they're going to craft their entire lives making as little compromise around profit and purpose as possible. I, even, even me who went totally into a development yeah. Fields. Even I wasn't thinking about that when I was leaving grad school. I was also thinking like, yeah, I'm probably going to go to a big four consulting company and I'll, I'll yeah. learn my skills. And I, even I wasn't really thinking that way. And I like to think that I was on that path. They do not see a trade off, and that is probably the most inspiring freaking thing. That's that's I think I'm I'm looking at right now. To your very thoughtful point about the growth of this field, is that the more that that happens, the more that we're not going to have to have a, tra- a, um, a, a trade trade-off and the more that it's possible to learn the things that you don't know. I mean, I did all of my investment training pretty much on my own time with a computer um, and some friends that were willing to let me do some, some modeling on some data that they had. I mean, it really, I didn't, I didn't go to school for any of that stuff. And then I have, uh, you know, friends and colleagues from the B school world that are deeply trained in a lot of these investment functions that went to school on what impact means. Uh, so I think you're right. I, I, the kids are our future or what, whatever, <laughs> whatever they are. Kids are not kids, but they're our future. Break into Whitney Houston now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, okay. So getting back onto your trajectory, you went, you, so you spent two years at, at Rockefeller. You got this yep. really cool kind of transition period. Yeah. Uh, and what made you decide to leave? You ended up going to, um, Bank of New York Mellon. Yeah, you got it. I went to BNY Mellon. Um, uh, uh, the dark side, if, 
if you will. Uh, probably a little bit of a surprise, I think, after a couple years at Rockefeller. But I, I think the fact that that, that was actually a, a piece of feedback I was getting from friends, like, oh, you're going to go work for a bank. That's exactly why I wanted to do it. Mm. Um, Rockefeller had indoctrinated me, quite frankly, into this belief that unless it is an entirely multi-sector field-driven approach, impact investing is just going to remain nascent. And I think I drunk the Kool-Aid so much that I wanted to see it for myself. And so I had this incredible opportunity to hop over to, to BNY Mellon um, and do two things. One, to build um, a pilot impact investing fund of funds, which we designed as a donor advised fund. Um, and that was a, a fund of funds in that it selected managers um, in the um, venture capital and private equity space. So not necessarily our own portfolio of companies, but a portfolio of managers that were then investing in companies that sort of fit our, the, the, um, the bank's values. Um, and an opportunity to actually work with the wealth management group um, and offer some training and guidance on how the firm might actually offer impact investing like products to clients. Um, it was beyond fascinating. A lot of the, a lot of Spectrum's methodology around stakeholder buy-in, um, actually comes from my time at BNY Mellon. Mm. Um, I was hired by the corporate social responsibility team, which these days is, is pretty unpopular, right? You want, you want your head of impact type people to be situated in investment management or wealth management. Um, and we were trying to change behavior in one of the oldest financial institutions uh, in the country, let alone the world. So there really, um, there was so much work that needed to be done to bring together a really wide range of stakeholders across the business units, uh, senior leadership, and then multiple functions, CSR, investment management, wealth management, um, but also to do it in a way that actually um, gave people confidence they weren't going to lose their jobs. I mean, if you, if you think a little bit about sort of um, a banker in his or her mid forties that has been doing sort of traditional wealth management for the better part of 25 years. And someone comes in and says like, actually, we're going to talk about what investments are for, for high net worth individuals in an entirely different way. And here are all these new products and new set of language. Learn this. You could imagine someone saying, excuse me, what? Like I'm, you know, 20 years away from retirement. What are you talking about? Um, and that was that was a really big challenge because that's actually what helped for Spectrum us to understand what the training advice and advisory practice in our work is. And that's really about level setting knowledge, not mitigating fears. Because if we level set knowledge in the right way, we will actually have people take the baton and make impact a reality. If we just tell people, don't worry about it. This is for the new generation. You're just going to turn people off. Yeah. Uh, and so BNY Mellon, that time there was totally instrumental in a lot of the way that Spectrum works right now. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. How did, you, how did you find the cultural difference from a day-to-day work perspective? Yeah, I... Um, yeah, actually, very meaningful. I... Um, <laughs> on a personal level, I'm, I'm actually a little bit better suited to... <laughs> the private sector. I, uh, <laughs> I, that doesn't, I don't know that I'm saying a very nice thing about myself. I, I actually <laughs> enjoy the speed, the pace, uh, a certain degree of the fanatic- freneticism, um, the kind of binary way that risk and reward are compensated, quite frankly. Um, I am not a, I wouldn't call myself a soft person. <laughs> I, uh, I think I, I bowl through life um, somewhat honestly and kind of eye on the prize. And so for me, what I, what I loved about being in a bank is that it, it, everything was so formulaic in terms of the amount of effort you put in and what you get out of it. In some of my nonprofit jobs, I've actually struggled a little bit um, between bringing the professional, my professional and personal life together. I'm a, 
I like to keep those things kind of separate and apart. Um, You're a segregator. You keep those. I am. Yeah, I think I blend them all together. <laughs> yeah, I want right. Them separate. <laughs> no, it's, it's since starting the company that's become a pipe dream. I certainly can't do that anymore. But yeah. but uh, there were definitely jobs where I, I thought to myself, like, I'm going to be here. Let's be honest, it was New York, so it was more like nine to seven. I'm going to be here nine to seven, and I'm going to get my work done, and then I'm probably going to go out to dinner with my friends. And those those worlds yeah. were very separate. And I love that about banking because I kind of felt like that. I felt like I'm here to work. And then the minute that I can get everything done, then I'll go play. Uh, and I think that's harder in nonprofit. You um, you create really deep personal relationships with the people that you work with. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. you have had many, like, I know that this must be illustrative of your last yeah. um, your last job. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I spent some time at in the retail, right. you know, at, in a bank at a retail level. So not, right. not at corporate. Um but, uh, and then, you know, morning, my time at Morningstar was, um, uh, Morningstar is meaningfully, there's a meaningfully different culture there than I would say totally. the kind of most base reader Wall Street, uh, yeah. firms and banking and, and I, and, and even within, like even within finance, there's such right. different cultures between buy side, sell side and, you know, I banking versus, you know, institutional, you know, sales. So like they, they, they can be. They can they, even within the within a bank, you can have radically right. different cultures from one one group to the next. Totally. But um, but yeah, I was in, I was in one of the softer areas, right? Morningstar yeah. is a really good culture and values, you know, uh, great values and all that. So uh, I don't I don't I don't have an equivalent experience to your BNY Mellon, but um, but yeah, certainly going into the the nonprofit side, right, uh, was a was a very different um, pace and and, and yeah. culture and all that. That said, I, I feel like. Sometimes people make too much of the difference. I feel like the non- whole nonprofit yeah. charitable sector suffers a bit of an inferiority complex. I think that's shouldn't. true. Uh, it shouldn't. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, like they kind of look at the private sector and sometimes give them more credit like than they deserve. And, you know, uh, I don't know, attribute some of the problems within their organization to maybe the sector and being a charity rather than just the fact that it's human nature. And like, yeah, I know plenty of inefficient private sector firm yeah. <laughs> people yeah. are lazy and incompetent and totally so <laughs> that's totally. a human thing not a <laughs> no right not a sector thing i mean it's not so different right from part of what makes impact investing inaccessible is that there is almost like a mysticism given to the investment side of the practice yeah. by people who are not trained in that that quite frankly um I don't think is deserved. I mean, sure, you you know this too, but I know a lot of investment professionals that are not great investment professionals, oh, uh, yeah. right? So it's also yeah. just that, like, it's. I think um, I, I think part of the bluster comes from the naming convention. It actually does the disservice of locking people out. They, they um, deliberately this is why I love yeah. Michael Lewis so right. much as a writer, and yeah, um, it, like they deliberately invent terms to make it totally. sound confusing. So things that are totally. very simple topics and then you create a complex term for it. And I know right. lots of industries are guilty of, of jargon, but it feels like the yeah. financial services perfected it. Like yeah. we're really going to do a good job of coining this in a way that makes yeah. it really smart <laughs> and you real feel really dumb. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people anyway, uh, I could, I could rant about this, but <laughs> I completely agree with what you just said. And yeah, uh, and, and emphasizing it further. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so, okay. So your time at, at BNY Mellon was how long did you end up spending there? That was a little bit, uh, a little bit less than 18 months. We, um, there was a bit of a leadership transition actually. Um, and uh, the fund work that I was doing was canceled. And so I moved 
um, full-time onto the wealth management side. And again, brilliant learning experience, but I think I knew that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of took what you could from it, learned from exactly. it, and moved on. And yeah. you jumped over from there to Case Foundation. I did. I, I did. So who here of yeah, right? These are some pretty fascinating organizations to get experience with. I mean, it's a testament to, um, it's just a testament to how grateful I am that there were there were people within all of these organizations that took a massive chance on me, quite frankly. And it comes back to the the part about people, right? That like you you can find good eggs in every place, and you can find bad eggs. In every yeah, place. but you were like, were you were you how deliberate were each of these moves? Like, were you were they opportunistic? Like, oh, there's an opening, and I know case, or was it like I yeah. I want to go over to a bank, I want to go over to a foundation, I want to, and I want it to be this foundation because. Like this is going to round out my experience. Yeah. I would say that my family would tell you that I pretty much had a 10 year plan since I was six years old and yeah. that the 10 year plan gets revised every quarter. Um, I'm very happy to report thanks to lots of self-reflection and therapy. That doesn't happen anymore, but, but uh, that was definitely how I rode through my twenties. And so uh, there was definitely a plan. I don't know that I had, um, specific organizations in mind, but I think it was very clear that I wanted to try one of everything. I have a colleague at the Case Foundation, uh, I'm sorry, at the Rockefeller Foundation, who used to say like, um, the biggest risk in losing Rahana is that she gets bored. And I think that's probably quite, you know, if I'm being uh, <laughs> super honest about strengths and weaknesses, yeah. that is, is it's both. Um, and in some cases in my career, it's definitely been a weakness that I sort of get to a point where the learning stops and I find a really hard time getting motivated. Um, and so to answer your question, I think it was really clear to me that I wanted a privately endowed foundation. I wanted a large asset, uh, um, manager. I wanted to work in house at a small family office. I wanted to try all of these things. I think think tank was in there somewhere, but I grad school knocked that out of me. Um, uh, that, that dream, that dream died pretty quickly. Um, but so, so when the case foundation opportunity popped up, I knew I was looking for something based on what had happened at BNY Mellon, but I wasn't actually looking specifically at case. I am a, um, though I am a proud Torontonian, I am a diehard New Yorker. Uh, and, and, uh, I think it would have taken pretty much a miracle to, to get me to leave the city. Um, and it just so happened that my partner had left for graduate school in Michigan. And so it kind of felt like if now is the time for a change, maybe, maybe I do it now. Um, and the thing that sealed the deal at the Case Foundation, quite frankly, was the opportunity to really come in and build. Um, and so what, what, what the foundation offered me and what its leadership offered me was a chance to really create um, a brand new strategy on what impact investing would look like for um, a family-run entity, right? Which is a totally different ballgame. You have BNY Mellon where decision-making is pretty diffuse and um, there isn't too much connection between shareholder and stakeholder. And then you come over to the Case Foundation where the entire strategy and vision is set by um, a family, in this case, a couple, um, that had a very clear vision about what impact investing should be. And in the case of Gene, sort of had a long history in impact. So um, for me, it was just a chance to try something new. And uh, that's what I did. I left uh, BK. I moved over um, to Case. I got an apartment in DC. I had to pay one friend a hundred bucks who said that that would happen. And I ensured her that that would never happen. So I was immediately out of pocket moving into the city. But, um, uh, and I did that, that role for just a little under two years. What was that like? It was really interesting. It is um, like almost every job that I've had, there were pros and cons. I mean, the pros were 
just the speed with which we could move. I mean, decision-making was so focused. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Decision-making was so focused. Um, We had to get one, principally one stakeholder. Um, And that was actually so blissful after some time at a large organization, (laughs) right? (laughs) And that was really lovely. The downside is that the world continues to turn and the 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 benefit of of running your own foundation or family office is that you get to set that tone and you get to pivot on that tone when the time comes. So I had moved to to Washington DC in August of 2016. When I moved there, most of the country thought a very specific outcome was going to happen. Uh, November happens, everyone's sort of in shock. And a lot of, at least in DC, and a lot of the um, high net worth individuals and families in and around the United States actually took the election as an opportunity to double down on other kinds of investments. So they, they sort of saw the outcome of the election as a wake-up call, that there were parts of the American public that felt uh, gravely left behind. And I would say that the Case Foundation brilliantly rose to that occasion by finding opportunities for programs that, that would lift those people up. Uh, but they were different from what we had before. And impact investing was one of the areas that sort of tipped and turned and moved around um, in various different ways and sort of took a little while to land. And so my, uh, the, the absolute best learning that came out of case was that the, um, there's no, there's no real such thing as future proof. I mean, we're living through an example of that right now. And that the best thing to do is to build an impact investing strategy that can actually tuck and roll when, when crisis, um, and or changes happen. And I got, I feel like I got to, I got to live that. I got to watch that whole experience. Um, and ultimately the, the foundation, the case foundation went in exactly the, all the areas that it should have. Um, and one of those areas, I think, um, uh, wasn't quite impact investing as I had envisioned it, but but very much is still part of the way that they think right now. So for me, it's just the best takeaway there was, okay, things have changed. What do we do? Like what, how does the strategy withstand life chaos? Um, and as things were changing, I sort of saw um, after about 18 months, just a unique opportunity to try my hand at my own thing, the next step in the, in the plan. <laughs> In whatever version we're talking about. And um, just uh, at the Case Foundation had a couple of peers and colleagues, two in particular, that were just um, pretty much the best cheerleaders you could, you could envision that um, really helped push me off the, off the cliff, if you will. And what year was that that you started? That was 2018. So I left the Case Foundation March of 2018, and then the company launched in April. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and so how's that ride been? I mean, amazing. I, I say that without any qualification. This is the hardest job I've ever had. And it is hands down the most fun that I've ever had. Um, and I actually think it's because that for me, it was about building a business that I actually wanted to work in, which I've, I've seen a lot of my friends and colleagues start companies um, and turn them into things that they don't actually want to work at. And again, in the spirit of like really, really grateful for lots of mentorship, this was a really key piece of advice for me at the beginning. So we're a small team. We're three people. We only work with about four to six clients a year. So just enough to keep us moving and agile. Um, We do not take on clients that are a bad fit for us. So we actually say no quite a bit more than we say yes, which is so hard when you're starting a company and you don't know where the rent money is coming from. (laughs) You have responsibilities, you know this, you know this well. Um, And so I think uh, saying no a lot has been huge. And so it solves the very critical problem 
from um, that my colleague from Rockefeller shared, which is that I'm never bored. It's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible to be bored yeah. doing this work. Uh, I, I feel like I hit the jackpot. I feel really lucky. That's amazing. Um, so the, one of those uh, one of those clients that you took on was the what's now known as the Equality Fund, and was a consortium yes. of um, for profit and nonprofit charitable organizations. Um, talk a little bit about that. I think that's just a fascinating scenario case because it's, um, it's such a unique, um, you know, use of government funding and they're trying to really do something that in this case, global affairs Canada had never done before with some of their development finance dollars. So yeah, yeah, chat a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I can take 0.00000% credit for, for the idea. Uh, in any way. Um, uh, but I think I'm a beneficiary of that innovation to your point, right? Like sort of getting to ride along in an unbelievably cool use of public and private capital coming together. So uh, the Equality Fund essentially was, um, as you mentioned, sort of the 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 uh, idea of the government of Canada to try and bring more feminist decision-making into pretty much all aspects of how it was doing um, its foreign policy, everything from giving and granting to the way that um, uh, they think about uh, foreign foreign aid to the way that they make decisions on their investment capital. And it, it really was, I think, off the backs of um, a really great history in Canada of supporting women's rights. So the Equality Fund uh, that I was hired by um, was um, an extension of Match International, which uh, was an unbelievably proliferate women's rights organization, a women's rights funding organization that was based out of Ottawa. And essentially what what the team that had recruited me had, had brought to the table was a really long track record in effective feminist grant making and a really real desire to have a private investment strategy that would simply uplift and extend that. It was almost that simple. And so Spectrum was brought in by uh, the original Equality Fund team to think through what that looks like. How do we amplify grant making? How do we build an investment portfolio that actually lives our values? And how do we actually turn the tap off on the, again, I'm preaching to the choir here, but the unbelievably destructive relationship between fundraising and grant making. So you can only ever make grants when you fundraise. And it's such a hat out exercise. I mean, you have to go and basically beg, borrow and steal for funds in order to do the grant making effectively. And every time that happens, work essentially has to stop. Um, And so I think it was solving a lot of problems at once. I think it was also indicative of the government of Canada sort of saying, we know we have a brief idea of what we need here, um, but but we're actually open to you telling us what that should look like, Um, which I don't think has happened that frequently in government procurement, right? How many times do you have a government that's like, oh, we don't know what we don't know. We, right. we're, we're here for the experts to teach us. So what, what Spectrum helped the Equality Fund build was essentially a gender lens investment strategy. It's a multi-asset class investment strategy that essentially uh, does the three things that I mentioned. So it helps um, create um, revenues to grant making in perpetuity so that this is not just a 15-year program where the government money dries out. It actually builds a multi-asset class investment strategy where gender is baked in at every single level, which I think you and I know is pretty rare. Um, and it's a pretty sizable first-of-its-kind commitment in, in a Canadian context. And so uh, we essentially focused on trying to identify what that multi-asset class approach should look like um, and really supported the Equality Fund in integrating gender and in all pieces of it. Um, and then had the even even better fortune, and I really mean that, 
of, of helping to bring on the team that now leads uh, the, the investment side at the Equality Fund. Um, uh, consultants being responsible for execution is always a scary thing to do. And so I think at a, from a personal growth, personal and professional growth um, um, reflection, I think it was, it was actually pretty great that um, we were able to build something, I think, that the Equality Fund really appreciated, but we, were, we also knew when, when it was time for us to go. Um, and we also knew when it was time to step out and really allow the right team of people to take this to the next level. And they are. The current investment team at the Equality Fund is unbelievable. The leadership at the Equality Fund um, through their co-CEO model, I've never seen anything like it. It's unbelievable. Um, so all the pieces are in place. They, um, they're going to thrive, I think. Uh, and it's just a, a real joy to have been able to watch that. Yeah, that's really uh, it's really cool for those kind of we probably get I think a variety of listeners from those who are steeped in this space to those who are yeah. kind of newer to the space. But yeah, the, you correct me if I'm oversimplifying. Uh, no, no, but it was a the government was recognizing that kind of women's based um, both for profits and and nonprofits, particularly like you know. Um, civil society type groups, women's based grassroots organizations in developing countries were lacking access to funding. They mm-hmm. there was very few organizations directly delivering capital to them. And so they wanted uh, uh, to use this funding to be able to, to get money to those organizations, but wanted to do it in a way that was not only about just granting it so that the money, the $300 million would be spent, but right. then we could set it up in a more sustainable way so that there was an investment arm that potentially would fund continuing ongoing granting while being able to draw in more private sector capital to sort of totally. take a million and, and, and magnify it by, uh, by crowding in private sector capital. And you had to manage this. You basically had to come up with from scratch, how are you going to use $300 million to both pay the yeah. costs, grant, yeah. and be able to invest in a way that you know, drives in more capital, produces returns that cover your costs and allow you to grant. And that's totally. a pretty challenging task. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that. that's right. And I think one of the things actually that helped us on the investment strategy side is um, was the ability to borrow pretty heavily from the existing gender lens investment framework, right? So the the GLI ecosystem basically advocates for examining the impact on women and girls at every stage of the investment process. So that's from selection to pre-investment to post-investment. And the reason that I bring that up is because I think that the what GLI has done unbelievably well is retain the parts of the investment process that are investment and layer on top a much more thoughtful way of thinking about end beneficiary. And so to our earlier conversation about sometimes in the impact investing space, we let go of the investment acumen. Gender lens investing has done the opposite. It's really retained the investment part of the ecosystem and simply said that does not need to happen at the expense of women and girls. And here are all of the different lenses we can use to reward companies that uplift women into key decision-making positions. We can reward companies who are developing products and services that are meant to benefit women principally. We can reward companies who are creating access to capital that have not had it before. And I think when you add lenses in, as opposed to take out the foundation of the investment theory, that's when you actually have an opportunity to do exactly what you said, right? Which is generate returns, which we had to do, cover our costs, which we had to do, and support grant making in perpetuity, which we had to do. And so I think that our ability to pull from what I consider some of the best of impact investing, which is the gender lens movement, and simply 
present that, I'm oversimplifying, I know, but present that to the government of Canada as a way to actually use best in class methodology to just uplift our capability. Uh, that uh, just on a personal level was a, was an unbelievable learning experience, right? To be able to connect those dots. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. It's a, uh... It's a fascinating uh, exercise, and I think you know, everyone you know involved at, at all stages you know, can't help but learn from from that because well, for again, sure for for everybody you know I don't think a few organizations have been in a position like that before. Um, totally. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, well, in the interest of time, I want to maybe wrap up with a couple of last questions that um, I'd love to hear your feedback on. So, one is: Are there what what sort of common mistakes do you see people and organizations making in in, in impact investing in particular? Are there any sort of common threads, things that stand out? Like if you could snap your fingers and make it, it go away? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, I'm going to say two things. I'm going to, I'm going to say one, um, a lack of know thyself. So, uh, organizations that jump into this field without having a really good sense of their own strengths and weaknesses. I think that is pretty much the condition that we've seen that yields to success. So I would say a lack of that is probably, uh, and that has nothing to do with impact investing. That's just yeah. sort of organizational sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we could snap our fingers and fix a lot of things, that would be the first thing that we fix. And then the second thing that we fix is um, doing this work without getting your internal stakeholders on board. So this is as much an internal convincing approach as it is convincing the, the world, the external world that you, ha- you have a role to play here. Um, and so I think... Uh, that would be the second thing that I think we 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 would urgently impress upon organizations that if you don't have buy-in everywhere, not just C-suite, but the people who are going to have to actually run these programs, if you don't have buy-in, that's step one. Make sure you get buy-in. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I think both of those things ring true from my observations yeah. and experiences and what right. I've seen in this space. So, yeah. Right. Um, and then... Um, Last question for you uh, before we'll let you get back to your day. Uh, of course. Are there people or people or organizations in particular that you admire? You think like they've really they're doing they're doing it right and they're mm-hmm. really kind of blazing a, a trail for us and showing us how. Yeah. Oh man, we could we could probably spend hours on that. I mean, that's the sure. that's the benefit, right, of being in impact investing is that the answer to who's doing it right for me is such a longer list than who's doing it wrong, which is such it's, it's that's bliss. really nice to hear. <laughs> it is. It's it really is bliss. Um, like I said, the the dividing line between my professional and personal life has completely gone out the window since yeah. since since it's starting in this work because everyone I work with is a friend these days. But um, I would say that there's a couple of other um, firms out there that I think are really trying to solve effectively getting information to clients in a way that's not extractive. Um, off the top of my head, RPCK, which is a, a legal firm based in New York, really focuses on the impact investing world, both both represents the interests of managers that are trying to structure deals and some social enterprises that are trying to raise financing. And its leadership thinks about adding value here in a, in a pretty different way for the legal industry. And I find that kind of stuff really cool that there are some hard and fast rules in, in law that, that are hard to break. And I think Chintan and his firm have found a way to, to actually change the norms and treat people and customers in a really thoughtful way. Hmm. Um, Align Impact, which is in, in New York and Colorado, have really thought through a, a very interesting way of delivering value 
impact investing value to clients by partnering with advisors instead of just competing with them, although they do have various business lines. And so it's sort of taking, to your point about human nature, it's taking the competitive parts of human nature and using them as a strength, not a weakness. So great, let's collaborate together to deliver value um, to client XYZ. And I just find that kind of innovation really super, truly cool. Um, And then I would also say that there's um, a couple of individuals in and around the impact space that have used uh, all of their strengths to really change systems to the ground up. Um, And I think you can find them in almost every organization. Uh, So just like a a laundry list, right, of people who who really live and breathe this work. Um, I don't think you have to look, I don't think you have to look too far, I think, to to try and find these people. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really been a joy. That's awesome. Well, listen, Thank you for taking oh, this gosh. time. Uh, I could with this could have been hours. Um, <laughs> I had to stop myself from many other questions along the way. But, um, it's really neat. I really appreciate it. It's fascinating to hear your perspective on these things. You got a, as I said, like a unique set of um, experiences that just you know nobody's got all the right answers. But it's a really right. interesting perspective, and some of us have you know you know some insights that are <laughs> that are maybe more interesting and valuable, or at least more informed and, and informed by a variety of different kind of viewpoints. And so, like that's what really kind of appeals to me is the sort of seeing yeah. the, the world from different viewpoints. I think is really totally. valuable. Totally. Yeah, it's been my total pleasure. I am so appreciative for you creating the space to have these conversations. It's uh, more fun than it probably should be. So thank you. Awesome. Well, I'll have to do it again another time. We can dive into all sorts of other issues. Sign me up. All right. Sounds good. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.